We are here in the 11FS offices in London for episode 7 of Blockchain Insider. And this isn't about time travel because it is episode 111, which as you all know in binary is 7. Anyway, so this week's show is dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. And I hope you're all buckled in because today we bring you Carney Wants Reserve Currency, Banking Licenses for All. And who is making money in crypto? All this and much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I am your host, Sarah Feenan, as Simon is getting married. Woohoo! Woohoo! Congratulations to Simon. So he's not here, but I'm not alone. Today I'm joined by returning guest, digital asset lead at R3, David Nickel. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you, Sarah? Yes, very well, thank you. It's actually my birthday. Uh, it will be my birthday yesterday. Happy birthday tomorrow, yesterday. Yeah, thank you very much. So in the um, keeping with the time travel theme that we've kind of inserted into this blockchain, which this blockchain insider episode, which is actually nothing about time travel at all. But anyway, let's get on with the news, shall we? So for our first news story today, this one is from Bloomberg. So Carney urges Libra-like reserve currency to end dollar dominance. Mark Carney has laid out a radical proposal for an overhaul of the global financial system that would eventually replace the dollar as a reserve currency with a Libra-like virtual one. So this article is interesting. In it, we have a quote from Carney, which says, The combination of heightened economic policy uncertainty, outright protectionism, and concerns that further negative shocks could not be adequately offset because of the limited policy space is exacerbating the disinflationary bias in the global economy. What then must be done? So what are our thoughts? Could something like a global reserve currency be good for the economy, David? It very well could be, although you have to say Carney's speeches really just roll off the tongue, don't they? Yes, they do, yes. Disinflationary exacerbation, that's really bad. Well, okay, so uh, I guess the first question is who would want this and who wouldn't want this? Of course, as a regulator, the US probably wouldn't be a big fan of this, but for settlement in general, uh, it could be a really good thing. It could be indeed. And I think there has been some criticism. And on the topic of Carney's speeches rolling off the tongue, there's also a fantastic word in this article, opprobrium, which means harsh criticism. So it's drawn harsh criticism or opprobrium from the likes of French finance minister Bruno Le Maire, said it's out of the question, in fact, which for me is quite clear. So that's France and, of course, US House Financial Services Committee Chair Maxine Waters promised an aggressive response from Congress. Yeah, as a central banker, though, you have to say Jay Powell would probably sleep easier if he didn't have to act as the world's central bank. The world's central bank, yes, the world's bodyguard. What could that mean in an America that seems to be moving towards protectionism? Well, I think for rate hawks, of course, you would end the, if there were a global, what did he call it, synthetic reserve currency, then it would kill the line about whose central bank is the Fed, which would be nice, I think, again, for the central bank. Though I think the interesting thing here is about whether there could be a benefit in terms of the next crisis, which, you know, if you read most of the stuff out there, you'd say it's coming on the horizon or Mm. even closer then. And could a global synthetic reserve currency be better set up to weather the next crisis? I think there's a, a really strong argument that it could. Yeah, it's also about innovation, isn't it? There's a very different world to these post-Bretton Woods era. And there's some pundits maybe out there that might sort of indicate that we're coming to the end of this financial wave and the structure 
the infrastructure in place and there's lots of innovation around payments and of course we have our favorite bitcoin which is an alternative to using mm. the existing rails and hodling as well and increasing one's wealth hodling it was interesting that carney says that all well the successful reserve currencies that have been successful in the past start as mediums of exchange and then move into stores of value later on which i think was a really well put way of describing the way those things come together the other thing that i thought was interesting was that he said that essentially the tax cut in the last couple of years at or near peak employment for the us caused further flight to the us as dollar denominated assets grew in in value it's basically a, a question of you know where else are they going to go after emerging market economies were kind of forced to hedge because of that so it's a lot of big macro questions and of course with carney on his way out yeah. he could be um pitching for his next job his next business could be he could also feel like he has the freedom to be able to say these things that uh, he wouldn't necessarily be able to do at the beginning of his tenure uh, yeah, and I, I was reading an article the other day about uh, central bankers sort of losing the power of their mechanism as you can't really increase inflation by keeping the rates so low. But yeah, I mean, let's talk about the Libra like. Do you think that's just a, a term of reference or do you think he's coming out in support of Libra? Well, I think, you know, Libra, of course, has its problems and the approach, the structure and the processes have their problems as well. And Carney basically said that there are too many AML and KYC problems mm. uh, for him to mention. Uh, he didn't go into the reserve issues, which Colin Platt highlighted really well in a Medium article a couple of weeks ago. I have to warn you, though, it's a long read. And I, I know you, you <laughs> probably got through it, as did I, but that's maybe two of us in the city of London. Sorry, Colin. <laughs> the negative shill there on Colin. Negative shill, sorry, Colin. CGP. Libra is allegedly going to be backed by a basket of currencies. So then does it become a currency in and of itself? It's a very interesting structure, and I agree with you in terms of the problems. And yes, they have been covered, so we probably won't go into all of those. It adds an extra layer of abstraction and structure onto those the currencies by it being backed by a basket of them. So if you see sort of quite drastic changes in the sort of currency and the FX pairs between within that basket, mm. then what does that do to the price of it in a particular country. Um, it's very, very difficult to work out and I guess difficult to predict ahead of time when it's got we've got sort of a bunch of humans using stuff like yeah. currency. And then then the other way around, something Carney brings up is that he calls it a synthetic hegemonic currency backed by a basket of currencies. Then also that currency is affected by anything going on in the uh, markets of the jurisdictions where those currencies are fiat which I, I think would also be a totally unpredictable thing to bring into the system. So the other interesting thing here is that he talks about a, a kind of a bipolar competition between global reserve currencies. He goes back to the interwar period when it was between the U.S. and, and the U.K. about whether people would be using dollars or sterling. And there's obviously the question kind of left open in, in the speech about whether the next one will be between the U.S. and China. But, but then that was kind of shown to be in question when, when you go to the charts and it shows that a China slowdown is the second biggest risk factor, according to the investors polled. So I, he might have a point that actually a, a very diverse basket backing a synthetic hegemonic reserve, which, yeah, need to work on the name there. It could be a lot more Catch resilient. You. It could be. It could be. It's very difficult to tell. But I think part of the structural problems that you mentioned before was about this being, you know, called nicknamed colloquially Facebook coin and Facebook being at the helm of, of this. And a lot of the other investors initially mm. in Libra were these Silicon Valley based tech companies. So perhaps they're 
Carney is, in fact, starting to look at it through a different framing, which is not China versus US, but it's tech companies as their own hegemony in themselves. I'd like to finish off with one of the quotes from Carney here. In the longer term, we need to change the game, Carney said. When change comes, it shouldn't be to swap one currency hegemon for another, which I think is good warning words. So our second story is from Yahoo, and the title is Ethereum poised to be the first public blockchain in Hyperledger Consortium, if that even makes sense. The open source consortium, so that's Hyperledger, if the open source consortium's technical steering committee approves a proposal to adopt the consensus-backed Pantheon project. So the reason why I don't think it makes much sense is because Pantheon is a software client for Ethereum. So if that code base is then adopted into the Hyperledger community, I suppose, that doesn't really mean that the public blockchain Ethereum is on Hyperledger. So that was my criticism, really. (laughs) Nevertheless, so if Pantheon does become housed under the Hyperledger um, project, the proposal was sent out in a Hyperledger mailing list on August the 8th. And if it is accepted, Pantheon will be renamed Hyperledger Besu, which is a Japanese term for base or foundation. And Pantheon would become the first public blockchain project added to the Hyperledger umbrella, which it's not the first Ethereum-based project ad- added under theirs. I think they had Intel's Sawtooth and Burrow. Yeah, that's right. As well. So what do you make of this? I have to say, first of all, it's pretty amazing that a note to an email list is newsworthy. But I, I mean that. Like, that's pretty cool <laughs> that, that uh, in this day and age, we're saying that, hey, there was a, a note sent to an email list and it is newsworthy because it is. However, I don't know that I necessarily get it, to your point. I'm eager to follow the debate, but this doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Maybe it's a preposition problem. It's the first, perhaps, public blockchain-facing software project in the Hyperledger email list consortium. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Hyperledger and... The Enterprise Ethereum Alliance joined each other's organizations as, I think, it was associate members mm-hmm. a while back. So mm-hmm. I guess this seems to me a kind of continuation from that general theme about, I guess it's communities, really, because Hyperledger as a foundation is tech agnostic. Of course, they have Fabric and they have mm-hmm. a, a few others. And as we just mentioned, a few EVM-based blockchains as well. Pantheon's quite an interesting one because it's sort of public and does have permissioning in it as well. What do you think, David? Is there any chance of Corda being uh, put under the Hyperledger Foundation? <laughs> well, we are um, emerging platforms. We are Hyperledger members, and that's something where we very actively participate in. But I think there's a question here, right? So, like uh, the Hyperledger Foundation and the Hyperledger Group focuses a lot on enterprise blockchain applications and enterprise blockchain technology, and then to bring in something that is very much a public blockchain, a permissionless system. Actually, I'm honestly eager to see how they address the finality points and the kind of balance between that desire and that goal of public blockchain systems to avoid uh, censorship or or censorship opportunities and the the concerns about concentration or or collusion. I mean, if that balance exists, then I'm I'm very, very interested, as are, I think, most people who look at both enterprise technology and and blockchain technology. Mm. So Pantheon does have a consensus mechanism that does provide technical finality. So they've uh, implemented and working on Istanbul Byzantine fault tolerance and actively working on that. However, that is a consensus project and we all know they are connected to the mainnet. So in that instance, I can see why consensus would want to do it because Hyperledger does have a large and active community and is obviously tech agnostic to a certain extent. 
and being involved in the community and, and being able to kind of stretch your reach further is, is a good way to go. There are a lot of big organizations in Hyperledger, so in a lot of ways it uh, makes a lot of sense for them. I think to the BFT consensus mechanism, I think that what you then see is a big trade-off between wanting it to be open and allowing there to be uh, transaction orderers, transaction approvers who jump in or out of the notary cluster. In reality, though, you end up seeing a very small percentage of the potential uh, notary participants actually actively participating in most transactions. So then you kind of get back to that collusion risk again. And that's partially just a market problem, but I think that there have been enough you know, cycles of this game to see that play out again and again. So I am really interested to see how that works out. I can see what you're saying, but I think if you don't have that economic incentivization to actually participate in validating, then you might run the risk of being in that situation. But if the, each of the actors are economically incentivized, or even perhaps from a more traditional perspective, as validators, they have an SLA and they have to do these things. Otherwise, you know, there's... The Byzantine fault tolerance will certainly account for a number of faulty nodes, not necessarily collusion, but which is another problem in and of itself. But I think that's, you know, with a big enough network, then potentially we shall see. But yeah, I'm interested to see how this story progresses over time. Yeah, time will tell. We'll be watching very closely. Right. And before we continue with the news, uh, we will go to a quick break. And it's titled Always Be Shilling. This episode is brought to you by R3. Developed by R3, Corda is light years ahead of other blockchain platforms in terms of privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type or size and in any industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is now available at r3.com. Head over and check it out. All right, on with the show. So this next news story is from The Block, and its title is In First, Swiss Regulator Issues Banking Licenses to Two Blockchain Firms. Okay, so we have Switzerland's Financial Market Supervisory Authority, FINMA, has issued banking and securities dealers license to two new blockchain firms, Seba Crypto, S-E-B-A or Seba, I'm not sure, apologies if it's something else, and a company called Signum. So this is the first time it's issued such licenses to what they're calling pure play blockchain service providers. And the licenses will allow Seba Crypto and Signum to provide services to institutional and professional customers. FINMA has also issued guidance which said that the existing anti-money laundering AML laws apply to blockchain payments as the inherent anonymity of blockchain technology presents increased risk, which is an interesting point, actually, the inherent anonymity, which I think has been proven to be not quite true by companies such as Chainalysis. And um, if you do actively trade through something like Coinbase, then, of course, the KYC and AML laws will exist anyway, so I know who you are. Yeah, it was interesting that Finmas said, yeah, there are these licenses going out and the rules for KYC and AML just exist as they do today, just like in blockchain, which is a good another reminder that a lot of this stuff looks and feels like it, it does for legacy financial services mm. or existing financial services, which is great. Yeah, I mean, this is very much asset-based trading licenses. Mm-hmm. It's not really operating in new payment rails. They've just acknowledged that uh, trading these digital assets is in fact an assets class in and of itself, which I think time has shown us that it is. 
Yeah, and it's just you know securities dealers licenses to new blockchain firms rather than um, you know blockchain securities or tokenized securities. So again, it's it's kind of uh, the same as before. But I think it's it's a great step. I mean, Finma we've seen a phenomenal regulator in that they set out the rules of the road, they give people a lot of certainty, and that's what people building the space really really want. Mm. Um, we, we do a lot of work in Zurich, and you can see that there is a draw of of people to Zurich, not just because of the mountains and the lakes. But um, <laughs> but yeah, FINMA's, I think, clear guidance has been really good. And we see that now as well with the FCA. They've got a great sandbox program. They've got mm. great guidance being put out every quarter or so. That's really good. I think on the anonymity point, yeah, there are lots of tools that are kind of getting there, lots of solutions that are getting there. I think this is kind of another example of where the regulator is saying, well, you know, we expect this to be followed just like it is in the past. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. And I think that that is a very good point about being on the front foot when it comes to offering guidance. I think it does give some level of confidence that the institutional investors will need, or the clients at least of these institutional investors, to have such assets in their portfolios. We've talked about this before, but it's very volatile assets. So I do wonder what kind of institutional investors will still be comfortable putting that kind of volatility in a portfolio. Yeah, I mean, there are some that are really searching for the volatility. I mean, going back to the other articles we've been looking at, mm. there, there's a, a flight to yield in this environment. Well, maybe maybe not the last couple of months, but the last like year has been a search for better yielding assets. And mm. I think the appetite for volatility has gone up and that I think led people to think that there'd be a huge institutional wave of, of money going into crypto, the potentially yeah. most lucrative and most volatile asset class. I don't think we've quite seen that. No, no. There were loads of stories around a year ago, weren't there? The institutional money is coming. It's, yeah. it's a wave. It's going to yeah. be huge. It's a massive wave. Ride it, surf it. There's also a, a potential that some people are sort of talking their own book on Twitter there, but... We will see. No way, not on Twitter. (laughs) And now impossible, right? Impossible. But yeah, I mean, this is very interesting. And this is is another theme, I think, with all of the tooling and the infrastructure being set up for institutional investment. And this is a, I'd say this is a significant step in that journey. From the casual observer's perspective, the irony of a Swiss regulator calling for strong KYC and AML laws is (laughs) is, uh, funny. But of course, no, we, we know from actually looking at it that that world is changing and that is becoming a lot more important. Sorry, has become a lot more important. Yeah, I mean, they do say the existing AML still applies, so maybe those existing <laughs> problems will still continue to exist. It's a beautiful country. <laughs> Very nice lakes and mountains, though, yes. So crypto banks, excellent. There's the banking licenses going out left, right and centre. So watch this space. So our next article is from Coindesk, in which Binance launches a crypto lending with up to 15% annual interest. Speaking of uh, hunt for yield... Users will be able to lend their US dollar-pegged USDT, Ethereum Classic, and Binance's BNB cryptocurrency in order to earn interest. The annualised interest rate for the initial lending products with a 14-day fixed maturity term has been set at 15%, 10%, and 7% for BNB, USDT, and ETC, respectively. So Binance, coming out with a new product, a lending product, where you can loan them your crypto and then earn interest on it. Mm-hmm. So what do we think they're doing with the crypto when when it's on loan to them, David? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if they're going long on anything. Um, BNB, probably. Maybe BNB. If you look at the interest rate spreads there, then yeah, they're definitely a bit long, BNB. 
But it's, it's a good example of an exchange expanding the range of services that they offer. It's already quite a, a profitable business, exchanges mm. in general, both in, in crypto land as well as in just run-of-the-mill finance. But something that I think you're seeing across all, all of finance today is that there are particular steps in the value chain, particular points in the value chain where the service providers can expand the services that they're offering and hugely expand their revenue take. And uh, exchanges are definitely one place there. I mean, there's no talk about custody in, in this particular article. But of course, once you already trade all your assets at an exchange, then custody becomes quite easy. Uh, securities lending becomes quite easy, mm-hmm. whether or not these are securities. They've just obviously you know, reinvented repo there, so that's good. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and we'll all learn what happens with repo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you think they could be doing with the uh, the crypto <laughs> on loan, Sarah? I'm not sure. I think maybe something to do with trading using the exchange infrastructure that they clearly have. I'd be interested to see what this kind of does with any prices. Like you say, it's, it's very much a sort of step. And CZ has always been very innovative. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not you agree with the sort of jurisdictions and the products they create or recreate mm-hmm. is one thing. They're always on the front foot. And they've always been um, incredibly innovative and fast moving when it comes to that. So they, of course, have managed to kind of place themselves in a two-sided network and seem to be still very successful. Yeah, I think jokes aside, it's uh, steps like this that everyone's looking for in the digital asset space. And yeah, you can say, you know, tongue in cheek that you're just rediscovering what repo is. And, and it's true. But, you know, steps like this are important to bring things like repo or, or things that you see mm. in finance today to crypto assets. I mean, here it's a lending product with a 14 day fixed maturity term, which is interesting. That's, you know, one tenor of many in a normal repo environment. So it's just kind of it's interesting that it's going forward with these little steps. There's a particular product that's out. People will innovate on that. It will change a little bit. And so I think it's, in general, a good thing. You know, wonder what happens when those asset prices drop, but we'll see. Yeah, for sure. And I think that for users of the Binance platforms, having something to actually turn these into interest-bearing assets is a good thing. As mm-hmm. we know, that crypto doesn't inherently have any aside from number go up economic benefits attached to it like you might see with an equity or a or a um, debt product but yeah it's very very interesting so yeah i guess you would say ideally there will be more assets that are tied to real revenue streams or real growth stories of course, sorry, it's probably a bad example, but real revenue streams and, <laughs> and real shareholder value or, or asset holder value in the long term. I think for now, starting with these crypto products that, that are volatile and more speculative is an interesting start. But yeah, in an environment where there are companies issuing shares on a ledger or issuing bonds on a ledger, mm-hmm. this becomes a lot more, well, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, exactly. I think we still have a way to go before we have the actually digitized assets on Ledger and where that Ledger is actually effectively being, it's operating in the same way that a registrar might. Mm -hmm. But that is one step in crypto land. And there's also the enterprise versions of these things, which already have the existing knowledge of how these kind of markets work and how the repurchasing and securities lending and those kind of things actually take place. So yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, we won't do any more shilling, but of course there are a lot of <laughs> entities and enterprises looking at this, not quite on Binance, but looking at yeah. providing similar services on other platforms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're a lot slower to move. I don't mean that as a criticism, but mm. if you're already following the existing regulation and not entirely circumventing it, like a good friend CZ, then it will be naturally a slower process. And you and I both know there's conversations going on around that, so... 
Mm, Hopefully we should see some of that. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully we should see some of that come into fruition potentially towards the end of the year or next year. Who knows? So stories we didn't have time to cover today. The block. Facebook hires yet another lobbyist for Libra Crypto. This time it's former Coinbase executive to lead the efforts. And this one is from Coindesk.com. Australian securities exchange building new blockchain platform with VMware and digital asset. Interesting. Coindesk.com. Overstock loses another big investor in crypto token exchange T0. Unfortunately, that's a shame for Overstock. I actually can't believe we didn't cover all the Patrick Byrne drama. Yeah, we I guess this is a serious podcast, isn't it? And finally, Forbes.com. Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate in the US, Andrew Yang, just made Bitcoin and blockchain a big 2020 US presidential election issue. Ooh, interesting. All right, so now we're on to our next segment, Tweet of the Week. And this week's Tweet of the Week comes from friend of the show, Rick Burton. Congratulations, Rick. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. The weird thing about crypto is that lots of teams are making new money, but very few are making any money. Well, there we go. What do you think of that, David? That's a great turn on words. Yeah. Uh, Well done, Rick. Well done, Rick. Congratulations. Come back on the show for your prize. He's right that, of course, there have been lots of new stable coins making new money. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, there's uh, there's the joke from the last crypto run, which was crypto bubble, you might say, Mm -hmm. that there were more security token exchanges than there were security token issuers. (laughs) <laughs> there are more security token issuers than there were security token investors. So it becomes a little bit difficult. So, yeah, I, I don't think that anyone's making the kind of money they were in 2017. No, I don't think so. And that um, making up magical internet money is all well and good. But actually, we want to see some serious projects moving on. And I think there, there are a few of them now. But they still seem to be kind of based around the exchanges, though. And that's always been a business that's been very lucrative mm. in and out of crypto, actually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, once we have kind of actual fiat flowing through those ecosystems, I think we'll start to see some something different. There's also a lot of money to be made in the custodian space mm. um, and, and the custody of digital assets through the life cycle. I think people are realizing that it, just as we just talked about rediscovering repos, people are also discovering corporate actions, you know, yeah. um, things that you deal with on, on your eShares platform or whatever today. Uh, which also have to be done for digital assets, whether it's coupon payments or shareholder votes or or whatever it is. And that's a place where custodians are really in a prime position. I think that also as you see more of these exchanges get licenses, start business, then custodians are also in a pretty good spot to offer you access to multiple exchanges. Mm. So that kind of money in the institutional grade digital asset applications they don't necessarily see the number go up like like we did in 2017 online on twitter but i think there is some there is actually uh, nice real money being made in this space but it's it's just in building i think uh, kind of boring but useful foundations boring but useful foundations lovely not that boring lovely way to put it. It. <laughs> no no it's not it really depends whether you're interested in the price or the infrastructure and, uh, and luckily there's enough people out there interested in both to keep very active Twitter. Okay, so now, sadly, on to our final segment, which is an interview. So you do get to hear Simon's voice after all. So Simon had a chat with Dan Selman, who's the CTO of Claws. Take it away, Simon and Dan. 
Welcome back to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Dan Selman, the CTO over at Clause. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Simon. Pleasure to be with you. It is a scorcher in London as we're recording this right now. So, uh, yeah, it's in, it's insanely hot outside. Are you, are you managing to survive? I am. I'm actually in New York, so it's been very hot here, but it's it's cooled down a bit. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, listen, before we just make a podcast about the weather, let's make sure we remind everybody who Claws is, who you are. What's Claws? Should we start there? Yeah, Claws is a legal tech startup. Uh, we're based in London and New York. Essentially, our mission is to digitize legal contracts. So dragging legal contracts out of Microsoft Word and PDF and turning them into something that's more computable, something that computers can can start to reason about. And so I got to ask the immediate question, isn't that what DocuSign did 10 years ago? It is to an extent, right? I mean, they 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 paved the way. They uh, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and all that. They got people used to the idea of digitally signing a PDF. Essentially what clause is about is well what what's next, right? We we have the signature block. What other kinds of interesting logic blocks could we add to a document to start to make it smarter? That's pretty exciting. All right, so that's clause. But what about Accord? There's a project there that's uh, that sort of sits around what you guys do, but there's a lot of other people involved in that. That's right. So I, I wear two hats. I'm the CTO of clause, uh, which is the commercial. That sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> Especially in this weather. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm the CTO of clause, and then I lead the technology working group within the Accord project. The Accord project is an open source initiative, has a hundred of the world's leading law firms as members and many of the world's leading technology firms. So people like R3 and IBM, digital asset um, in the blockchain space are members. And what we're doing is, you know, through an open source, open community kind of development effort, building those de facto standards via open source code to describe, well, what is a, a new style digital contract? And what would a new style digital contract mean? Because we talked about there, you can you can sign a PDF online, but what does that actually mean for businesses, for people like you and me? Like, what do I get? Essentially, what you get is you get a contract where the, the data that you have to fill out is captured in an open standards kind of a way. So, you know, rather than having a bunch of proprietary forms um, or even proprietary formats like PDF, you know, we can transition the industry to something that's much more open, much more fluid in terms of building out this ecosystem so that the people that are building the contracts, negotiating the contracts, signing the contracts, and then automating the obligations in the contracts are all collaborating around a common file format. So consistency and common file format seems nice, but also like what's the tangible business benefit? Because we've seen a lot of standards work before, but the problem with standards is you have 17,991 standards, and now you've invented a new standard that makes it 17,992. So like, what do I get from all of the other stuff? You know, the, the automating of the obligations, you said something very legalese and wordy there. What, what does that mean? From a business point of view, business enter into thousands of contracts every year. You know, a large business certainly would. And all of those contracts have obligations. And at the moment, they're described in human terms for human beings. So the contract might say, you know, on the 1st of November, Simon has to perform this action under the contract. And unfortunately, they're only described in human terms. It's very difficult for you at scale to understand what are your obligations and start to automate them. 
So typically... So let's say on the 1st of November, I have to remember to walk the dog, but it's now uh, sort of end of July, early August. I don't know that I'll remember to walk the dog because it's somebody else's dog in another house, but that wasn't stipulated in the contract. So there's ambiguity, and I have to know what they meant when they were writing that contract. So how how is this different? So this this essentially would allow you, perhaps in the procurement department, to have a dashboard that shows you all of your obligations over time, You know, maybe receive notifications for, from an automated system to ensure that you're meeting your obligations but also that the counterparty is meeting their obligations. And in both of those scenarios, either you're going to be clawing back money that you're entitled to from the counterparty, or you're going to be not fined, essentially, because you've breached your obligations. So at a minimum, I'm going to remember to walk the dog. And if I didn't walk the dog, everybody's going to know that I didn't and can see rather than it was written down on a piece of paper in a filing cabinet somewhere and nobody checked the contract. I didn't do the thing, but nobody knew that I didn't do the thing because it was only written on a piece of paper effectively. That's right. I mean, and you're you're from a, a kind of a big banking background. So you probably know that realistically what happens is that humans are very creative and they spend months negotiating these contracts. Mm -hmm. And then six months later, they leave the firm and the contract just sits in a filing cabinet or in a, in a Dropbox somewhere. And essentially, the institutional knowledge about what are the obligations in that contract um, has been lost. I mean, and that's significant. So you guys have been progressing a lot in the last sort of six months. You guys had a, a decent round of investment. Can you tell us about who was that from and what's that going to enable you to do? We were very fortunate, but also through a, a huge amount of hard work from, from Peter Hun, our CEO. We closed 5.5 million round that was led by Galaxy Digital. And Lara Hippow, uh, one of our initial investors, followed on with uh, Seed Camp and Raptor. And probably the most significant thing, you know, apart from the money, was the involvement of DocuSign in the round. Um, so they participated in the round. And in fact, Tom Gosner, who was the founder of DocuSign, personally invested in the round as well. So, wow. yeah, that, that opens a lot of doors for us. And, you know, we're just really excited by the collaboration with DocuSign. And tell me more about that collaboration. What does that mean? Because you've got, obviously, a, there's a lot of DocuSign users out there. But as you say, they're just signing the contract. They don't know what that contract necessarily means, even though they were able to sign it digitally. Yes, yeah, so DocuSign are, uh, you know, they're now a public company. They have about uh, half a million customers. I think all the global 2000 essentially use DocuSign. They are the sort of the de facto standard for, for e-signature. But, but they have a big vision. So Ron Herson, for example, their chief product officer, you know, has built out this vision of the agreement cloud. They're moving beyond just digitally signing PDFs into the full contract lifecycle. So negotiating the contracts digitally signing them, managing them at scale, and getting into contract automation. So we have a deep partnership with them. They're building a product based on the Clause API, so powered by Clause. So you'll start to see some Clause functionality showing up within the DocuSign user interface You know, within the next couple of months. Wow, that's really, really impressive. In the next couple of months, uh, so I'll just be a DocuSign user and suddenly this new capability is sort of there in the background. That's that's pretty impressive from distribution standpoint for you guys. So who are the key clients? Is this is anybody outside? It's not just financial services I'm taking it. This is this is anybody who wants to use it in any industry. It is. It is extremely generic, uh, general purpose. And that's a bit of a challenge for a startup. You know, we, we continually uh, talk about focus and making sure that we're uh, 
you know, we're tackling the right channels, the right markets in the right order. So the two that we're most focused on at the moment are uh, insurance, you know, particularly around parametric insurance and supply chain. And the reason is that there are very large numbers of contracts that would benefit from digitization in both of those industries. And those contracts are relatively standardized. So these are not sort of snowflake contracts for, you know, $20 billion that that are negotiated and signed once and managed, you know, once. They're fairly standardized contracts. And that's kind of our sweet spot. So you've got a standard contract type where stuff always has to happen on the back of those contracts, but stuff isn't always happening. But by the fact that you've got that type, you can make sure everybody knows, hey, person selling the thing, you were supposed to do this thing and you haven't. Person buying the thing knows that the person selling the thing hasn't done the thing, the other thing, thing. So just to confuse things, uh, you end up not only knowing where you are, but being able to take action as a result. And I think that's that's a really crucial point. Uh, I think DocuSign is an adoption sort of path, makes a ton of sense. So with those standard contract types, how do you bring together the ability to compose the contracts, the ability to work with them, and the existing systems and processes that a larger financial institution or large corporate may have already? Like, What does that path look like for people? Yeah, it's a great question. So firstly, you digitize the contracts and you do that using this Accord project technology. You know, so we, we don't really, you know, we don't want there to be vendor lock-in in the description of the digital contract itself. You know, we believe that should be kind of open and transferable across platforms. And then you connect that contract to your existing systems. And that's where the clause platform really shines. Our tagline is connected contracting. So we've built a whole bunch of technology to send inbound events to contracts and then allow contracts to reach out to your existing systems to fulfill obligations. So if a contract says, you know, on the 1st of November, Dan needs to pay Simon $20,000, the contract will emit that obligation. And then via the clause platform, you can connect that obligation to an existing payment system or invoicing system to automate the obligation. Or sometimes to not automate it. Sometimes people just want to receive an email to say, Dan, you now need to pay Simon. That happened. There was a tri- there was an event triggered by the contract itself, or at least the agreement underneath the contract. It's interesting. You guys use the word "smart legal agreements," and there's this term thrown around quite a lot: "smart contracts," which is which is quite, I guess, challenging in what it implies. You know, where do you stand on explaining the the potential for for that subject? So, it, it, smart contracts has been great in in terms of opening up the market, but it is a slightly confusing term, and it comes with a whole bunch of DLT blockchain baggage that sometimes we have to sort of unwind. So, the way I explain it is, there's there's essentially two things that are going on here. The first thing is we're digitizing the contract, and that is that's valuable and important, irrespective of the execution platform. You know, even if the contract logic was running on a mobile phone, it's still valuable to digitize the contract. The second thing that's going on, almost orthogonal, is we're starting to experiment with distributed execution of contracts, of the logic of contracts. And that's where, you know, quote unquote, smart contracts and blockchain starts to play a role. Distributed execution of a contract sounds like lots of words with lots of syllables. So let's just break (laughs) through that. So execution of a contract is, I guess, the thing in the contract, the obligation being done, to really put it as simply as I can. And then if that thing is being done, why does that need to be distributed? Why can't one party always just do the execution? So we we just pick somebody and say, you make the payment or you receive the payment. (laughs) 
And in many cases, you can, right? It really depends on the power dynamics between the contracting parties. So if you and I entered into a contract, let's just pick some names at random. Um, I was Walmart and you were a, a small sugarcane producer or cooperative in South America. You really don't have any power to tell me how I'm going to uh, manage this contract. It would probably run on the Walmart cloud, whatever that is. And when you make your delivery, if the delivery arrives with high quality, which might be measured by a sensor and it arrives on time, then I will pay you the full amount. And if it arrives late, then you will receive a, a lesser amount. So that's one dynamic. Another dynamic might be that you and I are kind of peers, but we have a trusted intermediary. So perhaps we trust Claws to be the intermediary in our commercial relationship. And this would be like a notary historically, you or, or sometimes legal firms play this role. This is yep. somebody in the middle who's just going stamp. Yep. You know, this is this is the middle part. We we both agree to trust that intermediary and that inter- intermediary they can provide a lot of benefits hopefully, you know, they're not just rent charging. And then the final dynamic is actually we don't trust that intermediary and you want to run the logic on your side and I want to run the logic on my side and we're going to use sort of distributed consensus to make sure that the obligations that I think I have and the obligations that you think you have are actually the same. That's an important point, isn't it? Because the the misunderstanding around what those are, and there is this annoying thing where people have issues with version control in contracts, or somebody signed the last page of the contract and sent the PDF of the signature page, but didn't send the rest of the detail of the contract. And, and this happens on a regular basis today. So you, you're getting these huge disputes and contractual disputes that are eating up time, money, effort, all of that. Uh, just because people didn't have a way of of getting through agreement and agreeing what agreement meant. Yeah, definitely. And the the accord, the underlying accord project technology is designed to be able to handle all three of these kind of scenarios, so that you, you know, good stuff. So you're not locked into running on blockchain or not running on blockchain when you digitize your contract. So recently, we had Sir Jeffrey Voss, who's Chancellor of the High Court, on our podcast uh, here in the UK, and he shared his views on the state of the legal industry, evolving technologies. Where do you think the UK, the US, Europe is on the adoption of this stuff? And and is it something whereby there are real challenges to it being adopted from a legal perspective and or tech or finance? Yes, I think, I mean, first of all, there are there are challenges. The law is complex, you know, often for, for good reason. Uh, and there are jurisdictional differences. And to just quickly go back to the DocuSign analogy, technologists sometimes say they look at sometimes look at DocuSign and they think, well, you know, essentially they're putting a kind of a watermark on a PDF. How hard could that be? They neglect to acknowledge all the work that DocuSign did to actually make e-signature legally enforceable around all the different jurisdictions. There's a bit of an analogy there that sort of comparable work is going on around smart contracts, and the UK is playing a leading role in that. So Lord Keane spoke at the Accord Project Forum recently, and he kind of underscored the the UK's uh, willingness to be a leading jurisdiction. So we have the law tech delivery panel in the UK, which is trying to create sort of a, a legal tech sandbox, if you will, where, where law firms can experiment with this and the legal ramifications of smart contracts can be explored. And then on the flip side, uh, the UK Law Society recently published a study on the use of algorithms in criminal justice that was led by Christina Blacklaws. 
I mean, there's some pretty pretty cutting-edge stuff here. If people want to find out more about all of that legal goodness, if they want to take out the pain of contracts, if you deal with contracts on a day-to-day basis and you're listening to this, perhaps you work in financial services, where do they go to find out more about Clause and Accord and all that goodness? If you want to get involved with the, the Accord Project, it's simply accordproject.org. It's a very open, transparent community, please get involved. It doesn't matter if you're a lawyer or a technologist, really the USP for the Accord Project is that's where law and technology meet. You know, it's kind of a unique place in that regard. Uh, and if you're interested in clause and you actually want to run a pilot or a POC and you want to ex- start using digitized contracts and connecting them to, to systems today, just visit clause.io and you can sign up for a a free trial account and get started today. That sounds exciting. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on Blockchain Insider. My pleasure. Thank you, Simon. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Simon and Dan. Right, so that wraps up the show. Just to remind you all, this podcast is made by 11FS and they are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Ooh, 11FS also create truly digital propositions, working with banks, big techs and all kinds of companies who just want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. Want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday? Well, the subscribe button is just right there. If you're already subscribed, then please do leave us a review. So where can people find out more about you, David? Well, I'm at uh, Nickel right now on Twitter and on email at digital.assets at r3.com. And of course, you can find us at Corticon in late October. We'll be there with 850 of our closest friends. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'd love to see you there. Always be shilling. Always. Always. Thank you, David. And you can find me on Twitter at Seronimo. So please wish me a happy birthday for yesterday. And happy birthday tomorrow, <laughs> yesterday, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you can also tweet Clearmatics at Clearmatics or go to github.com forward slash Clearmatics or go to Clearmatics.com and look at our careers page. And a big thank you to the amazing production team here at 11FS. Our producers, Laura, Petra and Hannah and Alex Woodhouse, our editor. Thanks for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.